You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Prue. Hello, Michael. Andre? How's it going? Good evening. Oh, it is, isn't it a good evening? It is a good evening. We are touching on, we'll get right into this, the weak point in my wine knowledge that I, I'm unapologetic about, but I'm willing to learn. Uh, Croatia? Football, I guess that's also a weak point in my knowledge, but uh, I mean, I guess... Heaven forbid you take an opportunity to uh, make me look stupid and not jump all over it. <laughs> no, I know that wasn't what you were doing. Uh, we're, we're talking about Italy. Yes, we are going to be talking about Italy. Um, and I think even in spite of COVID, we're starting to see some people have been getting on planes and, and going elsewhere. And you had an opportunity to spend uh, a few weeks there. A couple of weeks in uh, in Italy, yeah. I did uh, Piedmont and I did uh, Tuscany, or, or more more specifically the Brunello region of Tuscany, or Montalcino, I guess is what it is. Man, I just keep um, because I've I've fallen in love with with Tuscan wine, uh, but you know specifically Chianti Classico, and I think that's partly yeah. because of of work that you and I have done on the podcast. But you know, I just have a hard time wrapping my head around like how big Tuscany is like I mean when you're talking about Tuscany compared to Bordeaux like when you're talking about Bordeaux yeah you have the east and the west bank but it's still you know it's 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 basically the same recipe but climate specific uh well Tuscany's got at least I want to go three major regions and then some some minor regions obviously you've got the Chianti slash Chianti Classico you've got uh Brunello di Montalcino you've got um uh Vino Nobile uh, and then, of course, you've got the the Bulgari region and so many other you know little regions in there. But the three major ones are are um, are the three I mentioned. Yeah, and I'm still just I'm still just like scratching the surface of like I, I've got a good base knowledge of Chianti Classico. It's one of the things I like to to pick up at the LCBO. Um, but I mean, let's let's uh, y- you asked me to give you some homework, and I did. And we, we actually created a document um, for the listeners of this podcast. For once, Michael and I came prepared. Yes, we tried. <laughs> so what we've got is what I did on my summer vacation by Michael Pincus. And then what you did was like, no context, no anything. You just made a list. I did. I made a list of some of the wineries to talk about. and the Some of these names look like people. What was that? Some of these names look like people. They are. Okay. So you started out in Piedmont. Yes, I did. Okay. So knowing that I know nothing about Piedmont, tell me about well, it. Well, it's, it's it's the region of Barolo. Let's let's start there. Okay. Um, so if you're drinking Barolo wine, you're drinking Nebbiolo. Um, so that's that's the reason I went. Uh, and, I, and I visited Aurelio Settimo. Um, which is a winery named after the guy who started the winery. His, it's now run by his daughter, uh, Tiziana. And the reason I even went there uh, was was because, um, well, the reason I wanted to go there was because I had done a Zoom tasting with her through Profile Wine Group uh, earlier in the pandemic, and I thought, what a great uh, what a great opportunity it is to actually see. Uh, her and 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 talk about their wines and and talk about their you know um, they have a, a, a what they call a crew um, obviously you know what a crew is so I don't have to go f- too far into that but it's crew Roca Annunziata 
And it's interesting. They have a huge portion of this. It's a 30 hectare piece of, of, of land, but they have uh, 3.5 hectares of it. And they are the second largest holder of, of that, uh, that crew. Um, and interestingly enough, their vineyards are actually mostly in that crew. So they actually make more crew Barolo than they do regular Barolo. Oh, I thought that was really, really interesting. It's not very often that you, that your crew is your number one wine. So they have a crew system similar to France. They, they call it a crew, right? It's, it, I don't think it's, it's fully recognized such as, um, uh, such as in France, but they are trying to get it to that stage. Interesting. And I think, I don't know, Barolo is not something I have a ton of experience with. I know that you and I, we had an opportunity to taste one or two Barolos when we wrote our Toronto Life piece in the fall, one of which was quite good, like it made it onto made it onto our list. Um, it's just one of those people when people describe Nebbiolo, like, I'm taking a look, I, I'm on the Wikipedia page just kind of reading as we go so I can hopefully come up with some good questions, but like, Barolo is often described as having aromas of tar and roses, and I mean... When you get a description like that, like, yeah, I don't know. It's not, it's not something that it's, you know what? I, I, I would think that, you know, people like to hold Barolos and they like to hold them for a long period of time. And it's amazing. Like, uh, now I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, yeah, please but do. like I went to, to Gianni Gagliardo and like, they don't release wines until they're they're They, they want them to be ready to drink early. They'll age, but he wants them to be ready to drink early. So he makes the wines to be drank early. So it's it's nice to know. And, and and people just think Barolo is one of those wines that will just age 20, 30 years. And look, uh, at, at Cordero, de, Cordero de Montelizamelo, I actually had a 54-year-old 1967 Barolo. Um, maybe that one had some tar and some roses. The acidity was good. It was smooth. I don't think I would have held it 54 years, but it's the winery, right? So... Um, was it my favorite Barolo of the, of the trip? No. Was it my oldest? Yes. Um, but I, I don't, I don't think you need to enjoy Barolo. You don't need to hold it that long. Where, where and when, like, where is, uh, I'm just trying to think like, like what's the best context for Barolo? Because it's like I said, like you, you hear about Chianti, you hear about Chianti Classico and it doesn't take a huge, you know, a, a huge foundation of wine knowledge to say, Hey, you know, those wine bottles with the wicker basket. I know that's not the same thing as, as Chianti Classico because we've done Chianti Classico on this podcast before, but I mean, like what's the context for Barolo? Like who's, who's drinking it? How is it drunk? And uh, I mean, where does like, where's it going? Well, the funny, the funny part about the Piedmont region is that it is, it is fairly young as far as uh, a, like a wine um, in the, in the wine world of making fine wine. The, the, the weird part is that the wine of Piedmont originally was uh, Dolcetto, which truly is, is a wine I, I very rarely like. Uh, I always just, I, I just never really like it. But it, at one point, that was the king of Piedmont. And then Nebbiolo and Barolo started to take over. Sometime around, it seems that around the 70s or the 80s, that started to become the more important wine for the region. Um, and then it became a very collectible wine. As you know, I, I, I do uh, wine cellar inventory as one of the things I do in my spare time. And, um, and, and Barolos have become very, very collectible and, and expensive, um, in, 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 in the relative, rel relatively, re relatively 
Let's well, yeah. go. With, I, I mean, with, like, like, like full disclosure in, in preparing for the podcast today, I asked if there's a bottle of wine that I could grab from the LCBO so I could taste along because, you know, I, I generally live vicariously through you when you're in Italy. Um, but I, you know, it's just, it, it's something I do want to learn about. Like it's, it's, it's not a gap in my wine knowledge due to ignorance. It's just, you know, my focus has been so much on, in Ontario that I drink a lot more cool I mean, like proper, proper cool and, climate and you, wines. And you do, and you do Pinot Noir. Like you, you're, you're really into Pinot. Yeah, Pinot and, and that, Chardonnay. That more leans you towards France, and that's right? it. It doesn't lean you towards Italy. But I'm not adver- I'm not adverse. Like I, I want to learn. Like I'm, I, I was excited to hear about your, hear about your trip. But um, I mean, you, you basically messaged me and said, "Don't worry about it. There's, they're too expensive to grab." And, um, and, and I mean that is the case. Although the LC. <laughs> Oh, I know we touched on it in the last episode, but man, the LCBO selection close to my house is is a challenge in in Hamilton. Uh, but yeah, you were you were beside one of those a, you know the A plus list stores in Toronto. Now you're what beside a D store or what is it? But it's not for lack of trying. <laughs> the the people the people at the store were very very nice. <laughs> so you know, and then the other the other grape of of the Piedmont region is is Barbera. Now I really. Uh, started to fall in love with with Barbera. I thought, now that's that's a really uh, fun wine. It's 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 I, I like it much better than Dolcetto. Uh, it's it's a it's a young drinking wine. Uh, it's it's a relatively inexpensive wine, meaning that you can find good bottles at the LCBO for fifteen dollars, all the way up to I think you were looking at a Michel Chiarlo. Yeah, it was seventeen. Seventeen dollars, which is a Barbera. I'm actually sipping um, on that, sipping on that right now, and um, it's actually, you know, like I said, the, the fact that my base knowledge of Italy is is Chianti Classico. Uh, this particular wine, I don't know if it's typical of, of Barbera, but there are a lot of parallels between this and Sangiovese. Yeah, I would, I would, I would say that it's it's fruity. It's got great acidity. It's it's like the pizza pasta wine of uh, of the Piedmont region. It's it's a lovely bottle of wine and i really started to fall in love with that and then uh i ended up at borsano and gagliardo and they introduced me to something called nizza which is a brand new uh docg in or a doc docg i think it's a docg in italy it's like the most it's the most recent and they are focusing in on uh, on barbera hmm. uh because it's supposed to be the best region for making Barbera wines. And Nizza is just like, you're going to start seeing it uh, very soon on bottles. They'll say N-I-Z-Z-A, Nizza, and that will be uh, 100% Barbera um, aged, you know, a year in bottle, a year in in oak. Uh, like, it's going to be some serious, and then the ones I tried were some serious Barbera, and I was I was thrilled by that. I was just so excited well, and by, I'm even taking. I never a look, thought I'd be excited by Barbera. Like, like I'm taking a look at at the branding and, and, and marketing on this bottle. Like as as a consumer, not knowing much about this, it comes in a in a Burgundy style bottle, and so Michelle Carlo Barbera d'Asti DOCG La Orma. So the name of the wine, then age sixteen months. So the age statement in wood is definitely something that is important to them. Yes. Yes. Um, they want you to know how long it's been and if it's a reserve that it's in actually in wood longer and that's written into their laws that, you know, reserve actually does mean something in, in Italy in, in an Italian wine law. Well, there you go. 
So okay, so now and then I, I also me, ended up at Gaia, but I ended up at their Barbaresco property. Now you're getting into a whole other region of Piedmont. Uh, Barbaresco is also Nebbiolo, but it seems that they can be released earlier. They're a they're a, a, a younger wine, um, but they have all kinds of crazy little. Um, they also have some crazy little uh, uh, laws there, and I'm just leafing through my book because somebody finally explained what uh, the rules of Barbera are, and I'm just uh, – sorry, a Barbaresco, and I am just trying to uh, to find them, and I can't. That's always typical of me, right? Uh, so, But, I mean, it's fine. I mean, you know, let's, let, let's go by, by taste. Um, I mean, one of the great ways that I've just, and it's kind of the approach that I am taking to Italian wines, which is, I mean, it's the other reason why I wanted to just grab from the LC, from the something from the LCBO to taste along with this is because I, I don't drink a lot of P, uh, Piedmont wines. And I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's no secret, like even when we were doing the LCBO tastings, like when I was working at the radio station, I had basically an hour to taste through as many wines as I could to put my radio segment together. I focus on Ontario. I focus on cool climate. So I never never went out of my way to taste Italian wines unless you or Gord Stimmel or Mr. B or Dean would point out, okay, no, you got to taste this. You got to taste this. So, you know, it's just something that, I I mean, now that, now that I've got a new job, I plan on spending a little bit more time focusing on outside of Ontario and and, and France. So anyways, just the, the, the point I'm making is I'm someone who likes to eat and drink first and ask questions later it's 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 how i've so, discovered so, some of the yeah, great cuisines so these of the world. wines are, are really made for food and i i found the the, the law well the, the basic laws of barbaresco is it's got to be nebbiolo grown in the barbaresco region maximum eight tons per hectare uh basically the consorzio tells you when you can pick uh barbaresco is released one year earlier than barolo and it spends less time in wood that's that's your your that's your basic barbaresco uh, knowledge. Let's go with so, that. So, how does... Okay, so ba- Barbera... No, wait. Hang yeah. on. Give me a second. Yeah, give me a second. Give me a second. Barbera, Barolo, and Barbaresco. There we go. Oh, there we go. So, Barolo and Barbaresco yeah. are both made with Nebbiolo. The group that, that tastes like tar and roses. Not really. No. Barbaresco... Not. If you age them long enough, yes. Okay, so... Barbaresco is a little bit lighter, a little bit fruitier, I found, uh, for the most part. Uh, Barolo, a little more wood character to it, but... You know, it's 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 got lots of acidity. Goes well. Everything goes well with food. Like everything goes well. With okay. Food. So so so, um, so talking to me. Everything's got great acidity, right? So so uh, Bar- Barbera is a very acid-based wine. As you're finding out, which would be very well with food as well. So Michael, talking to me, like someone who has admitted that he's not a big fan of old wine, that but likes things fruity. But I mean, at the same time, I like wine with a little bit of age, so that tannin starts to fall off. If I were going to the LCBO tomorrow, would I want Barbaresco or Barolo, or would I want both and sell me on it? Well, wow, that's a tough one. Um, I think you'd want, but uh, both of them are expensive. That's the problem, right? I don't know if oh, okay, if but you, I don't if, mind spending the money. I don't mind spending okay. the money if the wine's going to be good. Um, we, we've already Barbaresco had the conversation. Is, is a is a again, they're both very ageable wines, but I probably would go with uh, a Barbaresco, less time in wood. Um, more fruit up front. That's uh, so I, t- I tried a, a number of Barbarescos while I was there. I tried the one from Gaia, uh, which is was just a Barbaresco this year. Um, uh, it, it was, it, it, and I tried one from Toretto. Um, you know, a lot more red fruits, definitely some floral, much more gentle tannins, touch earthy. Um, whereas Barolo. Uh, you know, can kick off a little bit earthy, but they've had some really great years in the last, like we're looking at 16s, we're looking at 15s, we're looking at, uh, I think some 17s as well. 
Are we right there? Yeah. And, and they were, they were just, you know, they've been great years in Italy, uh, the last three, some a little, a little, what they call a little more difficult, but I mean, they're still, you know, really, you know, really good fruit forward, fruit forward wines, especially young. Well, there you go. And, and, and the neat, and the neat part about what they're doing is they've gone away from Barrique which are the small barrels yep. and they're now using big casks. So they're not getting a lot of Oak, uh, influence in these wines. They're allowing the fruit to shine a little bit more. So when and you're I, saying and big... I, I knew that from past trips when I, when I'd gone to, uh, uh, into Tuscany and, and done, uh, Brunello, uh, especially Brunello, they, they started going into big casks as well. And, okay, and okay, I had done a to... tasting a couple of years ago of Brunello. Uh, one of the companies did, uh, like, um, like a, a, a uh, I want to go a six year look at what they were doing and they, sh- they showed when they were, you know, in their Parker phase versus when they are in their now phase showing, you know, lots of Oak versus, you know, less Oak, more fruit. So where Parker seemed to have liked a lot of, you know, heavy extraction and lots of wood. Okay. Okay. So when you're saying like, when you're saying big casks, are you talking about like, um, the 550 liters, the punctions, or are they going even bigger than that? Oh, bigger than that. Bigger than that. We're talking about um, really large uh, hectoliter, 65. Uh, I'm just trying to find some of the bigger ones that uh, that uh, that they they had them in. Um, you know, 65 hectoliters, 95 hectoliters. You know, really really large barrels, and they're not. And they don't use French a lot of French wood either. They use the Slo- uh, Slavonian oak. Interesting. Is, is there a taste reason for that, or is it budgetary? The, uh, no, they fi- they find that it's a, a taste region. They find it very. Um, uh, they find it more pleasing, and and it adapts to the grape more. You know, I I love the fact that there seems to be worldwide a little bit of a revolt against the Parkerization that happened. And I mean, I'm sure we're going to get to a point. I, I mean, there's. I think it's one of the things that's that's good about social media, and I mean, I'm sure you and I will get down into this this uh, topic like down the road. But I, I think we're going to start to see writers like James Suckling and Luca Moroni, and you know, to a certain extent, Carolyn Hammond from the Toronto Star lose a lot of their influence as you know the abuse of large platforms goes and. You know, smaller writers and, over, and overscoring, and, 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 overscoring. and smaller writers being able to reach a specific audience because not only is wine region, but access to product is regional. The wines that you and I can get in Toronto are vastly different than what you can get from the SAQ, than what you can get in Saskatchewan, than what you can get in in, in Newfoundland. Um, but I mean, I've I, I've noticed, and, and I think beyond the the impact that that journalists are having, I think just the movement towards eating and drinking food that tastes like where it comes from it's not you know we're, we're past the coca-cola stage I, I think there was a while where globalization was just like oh my god i can make a product that is consistent and is high quality and can be delivered all across the planet and now we're at the point where a lot of that technology that you know was vastly expensive and needed to be used on a large scale is now accessible to smaller producers and i'm not just talking about wine i mean i'm talking about any artisanal product like think about the quality of craft beer now versus what it was 20 years ago anyways this is just a long-winded way of me saying is I, I think the fact that people really want food to taste like where it comes from we're seeing a lot of people stepping back from over oaking things and letting fruit tell the story because i saw the same thing 
when I visited Domaine Mizier in the Northern Rhone, where they were in the process, and they, I'm sure they're still in the process of phasing out their 225-liter oak barrels, and they've, they've switched to punchins. They haven't gone huge, so... Yeah, I'm 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 noticing that uh, that that you know larger oak seems to be the way to go, especially in Italy, because they're I think there are more delicate grapes that they are they are using, especially in these regions. Well, even and even that, in Niagara, that's what I think uh, that's what I think is now happening. Even in Niagara, like we're we're seeing a lot more people using uh, smaller vessels, right? Uh, or sorry, larger vessels, larger vessels across the board. Where you know, I think at the beginning we had people like uh, Francois Morissette. Uh, kind of pushing the envelope with things like that, but they're starting to appear at other wineries. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, we're not talking about that. We're not talking about that. We're, we're talking about we're talking about your trip to Italy. We're talking about your trip to Italy. Yes. Okay. Okay. So let's go down your let's go down your list. Um, y- 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 and let me cap off by saying, you know, it's exciting to see that there is more of a focus on. I, I know the word terroir. Like over the course of my ten years writing about wine, has now become like a dirty word. But I mean. Fruit starting to taste like where it comes from, and I think that's exciting that people are finding more ways of making wine taste like where it comes from, instead of you know finding dogmatic ways of doing it. Changing the size of the vessel that it's fermented in and aged in is not a huge is not a huge deal. No, no, and I and I, I like the way that people are getting away from from over extraction and and uh, and you know wood to hide things. Yes, yes, yes. No, totally. Okay, so going down your list. Um, Nitsa. Well, we talked about Nitsa. That's the Barbera region. Okay. Okay. So I skipped that. I just I I, I latched onto Barbera and and went there. Uh, so now we're going to Brunello. So yes, we're gonna we're gonna head back into Tuscany in the Montalcino area. Um, I, look, I Brunello I is something was, I like, and I know that I like, and it's not something that I have very often because of the price. And it's also a wine like when I think when I think of Brunello and and Michael, I want you to I want you to, to to just take the ball and run with it. And if I'm completely wrong and full of crap, just be like Andre, you you stupid idiot, like you're wrong. But when I think ignorant slut, <laughs> when I think about Brunello, I think about this kind of tastes like Bordeaux, but it needs more time in the cellar than Bordeaux. Um, not, not necessarily, but sure. I'll give you a, a little bit of that. I think as they start moving into the larger barrels again, it's going to need less time, um, in cellar so that they can drink it earlier. Again, you know, when you're, when you're over oaking things, because you think that's what people want, uh, and you have laws that, that say that wines have to be in barrel for three years or whatever, you're trying to look for, for, um, uh, uh vessels that are not going to dominate the the grape and that can be a, a that can be a problem uh i really had my eyes open though at uh, at bamfi uh where um a, a gentleman by the name of enrico who I, I i know i've tasted wine with him before here in toronto and i actually was out at the property and it's really funny because i got there and he's like let's taste like you know forget walking around the property forget seeing the barrels and the tanks and everything let's taste and uh, we got down to brass tacks, tasted uh, one. Two, I know how three, much four. you must have appreciated that. It's it, it's still the one thing that I don't completely get is like when I've heard you and I've heard you say it multiple times, just like that you're sick of barrel sellers. I yeah, I hate to say it, but you've seen one, you've seen them all. Pretty much, you've seen them all. Yeah, yeah. Maybe no, somebody's I, got something interesting, but it's very rare that it's really interesting. Oh, oh. And here's the thing: is like I'm not I'm not telling you you're wrong. Like I'm not going to sit here and, and scream at you that like you're 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 just like wrong for doing that. It's just like. 
I'm of the opposite where I just, I love seeing how people have things set up. To me, it doesn't look, oh, anyways, I just, I, I, knowing the way you feel about barrel sellers, the fact that this guy was just like, you know what? Fuck it. Fuck the barrel seller. Let's just go drink some wine. It's just like, I, I imagine in your head was just like, now we're talking. This is, this is my yeah, kind of guy. Yeah. So we got right down to brass tacks, tasted, um, uh, 2016 versus 2017. And 16 is one of those vintages in Italy. That's like across the board. Everybody says, Perfect. Great. Wonderful. 17, a little more difficult. But I guess when you have a difficult vintage, you work a little harder. And I think that's what ended up happening here because the 17s across the board from their Brunello Montalcino to their Poggi Almura to their, uh, their new one line of a Vigna, uh, Vigna Maruchetto, uh, to their Porgio Alamura Reserva, like all of the 17s outshone the 16s. And uh, it, it's just a really interesting, um, and I think we have the same kind of thing here in Ontario, right? Sometimes you you, you get you know 2016 uh, for us, which was a really great year, and 15 was also a good year, but a short crop. I think I like the the wines from 15 better than I like the wines from 16, and believe it or not, 17, which was that miracle vintage, which was a you know another weird uh, a weird kind of year. I thought the 17s are out, outclassing the 16s the way I'm tasting. Well, there you go. So, uh, in, in, in Brunello, I, I think we're in the, in the same kind of boat, uh, where the 17, a little tougher vintage for them, uh, whereas 16, everybody would just, oh, let's, let's go. And, you know, and, and the old saying is if you can't make wine in a good vintage, you know, get out of the business. Um, but it really shines when you go to those really tough vintages like 2017 and you can make really great wine. And then you, you you really separate the the men from the boys, so to speak, or no, totally the, the, the ladies from the girls, totally. whichever way you want to, yeah. whichever way you want to go. Uh, how progressive of you to uh, how progressive of you to make sure that that was uh, as gender inclusive as I think we could be I off the top I, of I our head. I gave it a shot, um, I but no, I I agree. I mean, that's been one of the the fun things that I've I've learned, like even running ADX, because. Um, We've been making wine in more challenging vintages than than good vintages, but I mean, yeah, there's I mean, there's some vintages where like across the board, like you can walk into any tasting room and uh, anyone anyone could have made good wine, um, but in a in a tough vintage when you go into a tasting room and the wine's still good, like that's where you understand that it's it's you know it's it's people who have the ability to um, pivot. You know, to, to, to work with the hand that's dealt with them by Mother Nature. And, and this is why when we were talking about moving to larger vessels and the deparkerization of wines, like, it, it just feels like there are fewer tools or there's less interest in tools um, to cover up mistakes, you know, and, and just find a way to make sure that the fruit is coming through regardless of vintage conditions. And yes. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, you know, and... I don't know if we've ever talked about this winery, Biondi Santi, which is a really interesting winery. They're, they're like the godfather of Brunello. Like I think Brunello appears because they made it appear, uh, sometime in 1867. They are the first to make something called Brunello. And now this, this winery, uh, also made the very first Reserva Brunello back in 1888. And since that time, now talk about a, a winery, you know, uh, what I always find odd and, and, and strange, I guess, is that, you know, everybody seems to make reserve every single year, good year, bad year. Most wineries will make a reserve every year. 
since 1888. These guys have only made 40 because they have decided that, you know, certain vintages, they don't, they don't, it's not good enough. So can you imagine, you know, going, uh, we're, we are, you know, going to cut our profits because reserve wines, as you know, got, you know, fetch a higher price, but we are, we are that dedicated to quality that we are only going to put it out in years that we totally believe that a reserve is, is due. And in, you know, since 1888, so that's what, 140 some odd years, they've only put out 40 reserve wines. You know, I love, uh, I, I love that. I mean, I, I love that as I love that as a consumer. And I know like, it's one of the other thing too, like when we talk about Chile, for example, terms like Reserva and Gran Reserva have, have lost all meaning because they're, they're unregulated to have a winery really back that up is, it's fantastic. And then, um, the last winery I think I want to talk about is, uh, La Potazina and, uh, or it was, I think it's called Le Potazina and, uh, it's run by, um, this, this really entrepreneurial woman, Gigliola. Okay. And uh, her two daughters, Viola and Sofia. Now, I didn't get to meet them, but I talked to them through um, uh, uh, through either WhatsApp or Instagram or something, just to 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 talk to them a little bit about their wines. Um, but they, she's really entrepreneurial because she started out, I think, in in the the head office at Biondi Santi as like a clerk then decided the, the she really wanted a, the wine bug bitter and she goes oh, I want to start my own little little enoteca like a little shop yeah. where they sell wine and then she says you know what if I'm going to do this I want to get a restaurant so she got a restaurant going and then she started her own winery and really entrepreneurial and she has all three of these still from what I understand so um, I think she first vintage is 1997 of her own wine and um, really nice uh, Brunello really lovely wines I was I was blown away. I had, I hate to say it. Maybe I'm just late to the party here. I had never heard of them, but, uh, the wines I tasted were, were outstandingly good. Well, there you go. So if you get a chance, Le Potazina, if you ever see them in the LCBO, snatch them up. Or if you see them through an agent, snap them up. They're worth it. Okay. Um, any other highlights from your trip? Um, well, I just I just ended on a high note. Let's go with that. Um, I mean, you didn't talk about the f- the, the food. I mean, I don't well, know. I think I think this, you consider yourself a foodie. Was, was incredible. Um, uh, you know, pastas in Italy, of course, are always you know super exciting. Um, but I'm a huge lasagna fan, and I can't believe I had to have my first lasagna in an airport. But um, <laughs> it was the last meal I had before leaving. But uh, there was there was this, this really weird pasta. Uh, that I, ha- and I, again, I, I, I don't speak Italian uh, and, and my, my accent becomes, you know, I can speak some French, but when I throw the Italian accent on it, it just kind of ruins it. But, uh, from what I understand, the, the, uh, the pasta is called the Pope's rope or the Pope's belt or the, the monk's belt. And it looks like just a, a, a bathrobe belt, obviously in, in pasta form, but it was really tasty. Interesting. And I had lots of, of tagliatella. In ragu. Ragu, yes, uh, the Italian word for bolognese. Basically, yes, yeah. That was almost a staple for me. Like I almost had a bowl like every day. And then my other thing that I really like is uh, vitello tonato, which is veal and tuna sauce. And if you never had that, Andre, that's you know worth its weight in gold. I- I'm I'm googling the recipe vitello tonato. 
There's so many different recipes. I must have had it. So it's mostly a Piedmontese dish, but I had it probably four, five, six times because I ordered it every place that I went to. And each time it's different. Each time. There's not one specific recipe there. It's just, just, it's really, it's, yeah. Well, we are getting close to, uh, getting close to pasta weather. So I'll definitely check into it. Perfect. Wow. Um, well then. I, I think let's wrap it up. Yeah, let's wrap it up. I, I think we, it's it's time for us now that we're back to hopefully connect in person sometime shortly. Maybe see if we can get some interesting guests. Um, uh, earlier, right before we connected, I know Allison Sloot from Cab Franc Chronicles because we talked about getting together with her to actually taste some Franc earlier in the year when we had her on the podcast. So that might be coming down the pipe. Um, I know Brian Schmidt has mentioned getting us on the crush pad, but I know we just had him on a couple of times, so maybe we'll find a different crush pad to uh, lay camp on. I don't know. The possibilities are endless. Hey, you want to get us out there? Get on the horn. Give us a call. Send us an email. And, what are we, two guys talking wine at gmail.com? And if you want to support us in other ways, you can check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash two guys talking wine. Um, and, you know, we're just put the bug out there. Um, Michael and I are looking for sponsorship for the podcast. Uh, you know, it's, it is time. We've been doing this for a while. Um, and, and we have a pretty dedicated audience, but it would be nice to, um, you know, we'll spread the word of your, your business or your product, or if you've got something going on, we'd be more than happy to consider that. So, uh, reach out. We'd be more than happy to open a dialogue. Perfect. Yeah, we would. I'm Andre Pru of AndreWineReview.ca. Follow me on social media at AndreWineReview. And um, I am putting pen to paper. There will be some new updates at AndreWineReview.ca that isn't just this podcast. <laughs> I'm Michael Pincus of MichaelPincusWineReview.com. Uh, Aurelio Satimo is already up on the website, and so is Cordero di Montezamelo. Obviously, two videos go up on the website uh, per week plus... Oh, so much more. So much more. I am so busy. Uh, Andre, I can be found on Instagram at the grape guy. Same oh, yeah, thing right. for Twitter and Michael Pincus on uh, Facebook. And I think now it's time to say good night. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes. This episode of Two Guys Talking Wine was produced by Jim Ray and Adam Durand.